Are you haunted by the idea that random people you pass on the street might have no idea that you're a fan of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy? Well, it's time to fix that by ordering a Geek's Guide to the Galaxy t-shirt over at geeksguide.threadless.com. Many styles and colors to choose from. Collect them all. So that's geeksguide.threadless.com. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 531 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me Please and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And today's guest is video game designer Cliff Blazinski. He was the lead designer on the first three Gears of War games, a series of third-person shooters about soldiers fighting subterranean monsters on an alien planet. He's also known for his work on the games Jazz Jackrabbit and Unreal, and he also worked on and came up with the name for the popular game Fortnite. In 2014, he founded his own studio, Boss Key Productions, and released the arena shooter Lawbreakers. But the game was overshadowed by Blizzard's hit title Overwatch, and Boss Key closed a short time later. Since then, Cliff has started to work on his own graphic novel, opened two bars in Raleigh, North Carolina, and helped produce the hit Broadway musical Town. And in this episode, we'll be discussing his new memoir, Control Freak, My Epic Adventure Making Video Games. And now here's an interview with Cliff Blazinski. All right, so we're here with Cliff Blazinski. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, boy. <laughs> okay, so your new book is called Control Freak. So how'd this book come about? Well, it's uh, 300 pages of my life story, um, starting when I was a pimply-faced teenager who didn't really have any friends or even a girlfriend, and uh, I didn't like the world in which I lived, so I decided to pursue a career, a career in the video game industry in which I could actually, you know, not only manipulate the worlds that I played in the games that I played, but also create these worlds myself and get involved in the gaming industry and uh, kind of have that journey becoming like one of those rock star game designers, which coming out of my mouth sounds really corny as I say <laughs> it. Um, but then, you know, uh, becoming the face of uh, Epic Games for 20 years and uh, then, you know, taking a little bit of time off, starting my own studio, which ultimately didn't work out, and then ultimately finding true love through the video game industry. So, it's um it's you know kind of a, a annotated like you know history of the video game industry but also it's a history of my life so there's been plenty of books written about the video game industry but a lot of them a lot of them read like stereo instructions <laughs> and i wanted this to be you know very personal uh an actual memoir that also talks about you know how the sausage is made uh, do you remember when you first got the sort of light bulb moment that you wanted to write a book yeah, um, it was, you know, basically after um, my studio closed, uh, I also in the same time period, uh, the studio is called Bosky. We made a pretty cool character shooter, a hero shooter called Lawbreakers. Didn't get a lot of traction. Then we tried to make a little mini battle royale that didn't do well. And then ultimately had to close the studio, which broke my heart. And uh, then at the same similar time period, I had to uh, put down my Australian Shepherd. He was 13. He couldn't walk anymore. He was incontinent. It was, you know, one of the hardest years of my life. And then, you know, after a year of just, you know, sadness and wallowing in it all, I was like, well, what can I do to be productive? And I realized, you know, I was in therapy at the time. And, you know, I encourage, you know, more dudes should do therapy. There'd be less fights at bars, by the way. Hmm. And uh, it's one of those things that I, it's just started pouring out of me. You know, it's like I have, I have a lot of stories to tell. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll make a tiny bit of money off of it. But it's more about the catharsis, the, the, the feeling of, you know, reliving the highest highs and the lowest lows of your, your life from the age of 11 all the way through to 47. And so for me, it was a, uh, it was kind of a no brainer because I'm, I'm an avid reader. I have a, a sticker on the back of my, uh, my phone case that says book slut. <laughs> and, and I still prefer actual books over Kindle. Darn it. We spend enough time staring at screens all day long. I want to, I want to open a book. I want to smell it. I want to put it to my shelf. I want to feel it in my lap. And, uh, it just, you know, now I can actually put, you know, published author, you know, uh, on my, my CV, uh, which is kind of pretty exciting, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, it does decently so I could say best selling author, but you know, <laughs> let's not put, let's not put the cart before the horse, you know? <laughs> so, so what was it like writing a book? Was it like you expected? Did you have experience writing uh, other stuff? I've, you know, I was uh, more of an English person than a math person. Like when I did the SATs in, in high school, I, my English score was far higher than my math. Um, you know, I, 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 as an avid reader since I was a kid, you know, I grew up reading like Piers Anthony and Stephen King and things like that. And I just, I love the written word. I love a good prose. And, you know, I've written design documents. I've written 
tweets that are good and bad <laughs> and everything in between. But then to like actually write a book and to realize, you know, pacing, you know, and to, to how do you end a chapter and make the, the person say, okay, I, you know, normally a person's like, okay, I finished a chapter. It's time to go to bed. But what can you do to make them go, okay, well, well what's going to happen next? Right. And then to, you know, to put it on the page. And I didn't do it alone, to be honest. Um, you know, I did about 80% of the heavy lifting, but I partnered with a guy named Todd Gold. Uh, he wrote, uh, Drew Barrymore's famous book, uh, Little Girl Lost. He's written books for the Osbournes, Mina Suvari, like all these other celebs and things like that. And he, he gets it. And so he, he taught me how to, you know, don't have too many characters in the book, uh, learn how to pace things out properly, uh, learn how to, you know, get the, this book isn't just for gamers. That was one of the, the main goals from the get go. The goal was to make it so the gamers who love and appreciate games in my work can see the behind the scenes of it. But those people who don't play games, those people who don't understand them, you know, it even has a glossary at the beginning of it to kind of explain some of the terms that are used in the book. So it's the goal is to, you know, hit it as, as wide as possible. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's interesting. You mentioned Piers Anthony, you know, my favorite author growing up was Robert Asprin, who was very similar, sort of um, funny fantasy and Craig Shaw Gardner. I was really, and so I read, a, I read some of the Piers Anthony stuff like, um, Veil of the Vole. That was one of the Xanth books I read. And um, I'm trying to remember if it was called Blue Adept or if that was the second one. I think the, uh, the, I think the Adept series was a separate series. Um, but then he also had Incarnations of Immortality, which was fantastic. Um, uh, uh, the, the On a Pale Horse, you know, the story of death and the guy who becomes death was absolutely amazing. But the thing about the Xanth series, it's this fantasy series that takes place in this alternate universe, Florida. You know, and it has all the, the classic, you know, fantasy tropes but as this book got went on they started getting a little bit creepier and creepier in regards <laughs> to to young girls and things like that and it's just that at some point you're like dude okay this is this is weird like i'm gonna move on to stephen king now <laughs> uh yeah well because you mentioned in the book uh picking up uh, stephen king's nightmares and dreamscapes his short story collection yeah yeah i mean that's that's one thing is you know i've um I've always, my dreams have always been bonkers. You know, maybe I have an excess of DMT coming out of my pineal gland. I'm going to channel my, my inner Joe Rogan right now. But it's uh, one of those things that, you know, one of the first games that I did was called Dare to Dream. Is you know, and I, I, I made that game into the art and the, the game design of the code under the influence of the acne drug uh, Accutane, which since then has been proven to cause all sorts of problems, especially with emotional problems and depression and suicide and things like that. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to make a game about my dreams. And then, you know, it was so weird and esoteric that nobody bought it. And then I was like, okay, let's pump the brakes a little bit on the weirdness. But yeah, you know, I just, I, my imagination always runs wild and I consume all sorts of media. And, you know, sometimes people will ask me like, well, you know, there's one part, how do I make a video game? It's like, well, first pick a discipline, find the right partners, you know, uh, work your day job, but then work on the game at night, you know, burn the candle at both ends. But also, you know, when you look at so much of that was in the Gears of War franchise, a lot of it was inspired by me growing up, you know, uh, with Saturday morning cartoons and then later, you know, G.I. Joe and Transformers and Thundercats and even, you know, Inhumanoids and Mask, you know, you know, all these fun 80s, which were basically ads to sell toys, right? But we as kids just mopped it up with a biscuit. And we loved it. And there was so much magic back then. And uh, I feel like it's something that's kind of lost in this day and age and get off my lawn while we're at it. <laughs> yeah, I, I could definitely see the influence now that you mentioned of mentioned it of Inhumanoids on Gears of War. Um, I think that had to be pulled off TV because it was too scary for kids. Uh, if I yeah, I mean the op the opening credits starts. There's like this this like T Rex character that has like an, uh, an open rib cage, and like the the T Rex would like take people and, and keep them prisoner in its open rib cage. It was like, and then the ending credits like end with like you know there's this family that's on this like. This precipice this 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 rock ledge and then one of the monsters hits the rock ledge and they're basically falling into the lava and you don't see the heroes come and save them at the last second it cuts away so the <laughs> assumption is this family died a horrible death burning to death in lava and it's like wow inhumanoids inhumanoids but it's you know the, the creatures from underneath that were you know horrendous and, and heinous and there's the, the human brain is complicated and you know we're, we're such data sponges and that what it does is it, it's all grist for the mill. And then when you decide to create something creative, it's like, okay, write what you know. And it's like, okay, you know, monsters from the underground, you know, these tough GI Joe soldiers, band of brothers kind of vibe. Uh, what else can we do with this? And then, you know, a little bit of apocalypse now and uh, see how we can, you know, throw it in a, a vat like gumbo and see what we come up <laughs> with. I recently, I went and watched a clip from Inhumanoids, you know, that, that mon the, the dinosaur kind of monster with the rib cage is called Decompose. And he picks up this woman and puts her inside his rib cage. And then she turns into kind of a zombie and, and shrieks, I am become one with Decompose. And even oh, I forgot that. Yeah, that's, that's actually what he did. He would like convert them into the undead. 
Yeah, and even as an adult watching it, I find it kind of disconcerting. So <laughs> I could definitely see why that would be too much for kids. I mean, you know, I mean, we're talking about the 80s here, mind you, right? Like, whereas, you know, like, I'm, I'm like, you know, 11 years old, my dad rents Robocop on VHS. There's just, you know, squibs exploding everywhere. You know, there's the, the one dude who falls in the vat of acid and turns into this, like, this toxic Avenger looking thing. And the, the car hits and explodes. <laughs> yeah. He explodes in one big green explosion, like the Gushers gum, right? And like, all these, these crazy movies. And, you know, the thing about America in general is, you know, violence is fine. Especially, in, but when it comes to sex, no, no, that's bad. Whereas Europe's the opposite, right? But I'm, I'm going off at a tangent. But the '80s, this was the era where you know you'd get up on Saturday, you know, you'd eat your Captain Crunch, you'd watch, you know, Thundercats, and then you would just get in your bike and go out and do God knows what. And uh, that's that stuff wouldn't fly even from 2000 and beyond. And uh, you know, the, the the like you think about the the playgrounds back then, it was like you know you'd have the slide that was like you know metal and shiny and sitting in the hot sun all day long and you you get on it in your little short shorts your 80 shorts and slide down and burn the hell out of the back of your legs you'd you get you'd always go home with a splinter and your mom would have to pull it out you wind up going home with bee stings and wasp stings all the time you know it's, uh, scraped knees and things like that you know we were uh we were tough back then people you know it, the gaming is generally tends to skew younger you know you look at the current generation of tiktokers and twitch streamers and youtubers and it's it's hey what's up guys like and subscribe that kind of stuff right and I'm like, you know, I'm like Danny Glover in uh in uh, Lethal Weapon. It's like I'm too old for this shit. But, <laughs> you know, people are like, yeah, you're old. I'm like, you know, sure, I'm older, but you know, I got to live in the '80s. You know, I got to live. You know, Stranger Things. You know, you're watching that with Scoops Ahoy and all those cool bikes. Yeah, I got to live that. I mean, we didn't have the demons and the upside down, but that was pretty much how it was. <laughs> and uh, you know, and you were in the in, in the '90s with your Pokemon's and everything, right? And so it's it was a different time, but you know I, I kind of chronicle that a little bit in the book. You know, dressing up as ninjas and having forts and having rock fights with kids, you know, in the in the adjacent neighborhood. And uh, it's a it's an era that I look back up upon lovingly, but also it was a definitely definitely a different time. When did you start thinking that you wanted to be a celebrity? Is that just growing up in America? That's kind of what everybody wants. Because you, you talk about reading that you, you've read every Entertainment Weekly since it was first published and stuff like that. Yeah, my first wife had what uh, used to give me crap, and she told me I had the the quote a the term a Hollywood hard on, and I used to be like, no, whatever, okay, and uh, you know, spoiler, years later, I actually do, <laughs> and for me, you know, it's it's a it's the culmination of a lot of things, and again, I'm not a real celebrity, I'm kind of like a D list like niche celebrity, like I have the best kind of fame ever. Like I, I can go to like the supermarket and go buy carrots and like no one's going to bug me like if you were like Brad Pitt. Um, <laughs> but then like once, you know, once uh, every week or two, somebody would come up and be like, oh my God, I love the, this game. And I can always tell somebody's age, but like, what game I did that they said they grew up with. Like I grew up with Jazz or I grew up with Unreal, like grew up with Gears of War. And then, you know, then there's the Fortnite crowd, of course, um, which, you know, again, it's consulting designer. I worked on it a little bit and then I was like, yeah, no, I'm out of here. But, you know, I just, um, you know, you just... Yeah, I'm a big fan of musicals and there's this um, musical Dear Evan Hansen. I'm not going to pitch it, but there's a line like, you know, if you're falling in a forest and there's nobody around, will I even make a sound? You know, the old adage that people say. And it's like just to, for people to kind of, you know, for for your work to have an impact on people is the most powerful thing imaginable. But then, you know, for them to actually know you, to, to meet them in person and say, I met my wife through your game or I met some of my best friends and, oh my God, I have a tattoo of your game. Like, you know, yeah, the money's great. It's nice to be able to eat prime rib once in a while, but you know, it, it's the most rewarding thing to have people approach you in that manner. And that's that's where celebrity actually is a cool and useful thing. And I've actually become uh, you know good friends with some of the people who are fans of my work initially. You know, because they were chill and they weren't weird. <laughs> actually, the one thing I want to ask you about is so in the book you mentioned that one time you just sort of threw together this meetup for Gears of War fans, and in um like I think GameStop in Union Square in New York. Yeah, and someone in someone in the audience says, uh, you, "You said, what do you think is going to happen to the audience? What do you think is going to happen, or what do you want to happen in Gears of War 3? And someone in the audience says, "Dom's got to die," and and you were actually like, "Oh, I think I'm going to do that." Yeah, and, I mean, I don't I don't know what the policy is with swearing on here. Oh, you can swear as much as you want. Yeah, the dude looks at me in the eyes. He goes, "Shit's got to happen," and I'm like, <laughs> "Really?" And I'm like, "Yeah, maybe shit does have to happen." So on the little puddle jumper flight back to Raleigh, um, after doing Fallon, um, I think that was the time I got bumped by Justin Bieber. <laughs> um, anyway, it was one of those things I'm like, yeah, I think we got to kill Dom because I mean, you think about it, the dude, you know, he, he found his, his, his like vegetative wife, you know, like there's no way he could have brought her out of the hollow. And so he had to mercy kill his own wife, the love of his life. I mean, that's really fucked up shit when you think about it. I was in a dark place when I had, I, I was working, collaborating with the writers and everything on that. And uh, so then Dom had to, you know, ultimately go out, you know, and the, the writer in the third game, Karen Travis is like, he, he needs to go out in a blaze of glory. He needs to sacrifice himself for the squad. 
And, you know, during the time period when the Gears franchise was, you know, you know, everybody was playing it and it was, it was in the zeitgeist, you know, the, the, the four and five are, are still really, really good. Uh, but the thing is people are messaging me like fix gears. I'm like, that's, that's not how it works. <laughs> um, but the thing is, is people would criticize the game. This is just some big stupid bro shooter with chainsaws, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, every once, once every like three or four months, I'll just pop onto YouTube and, and go to, and look up like the, you know, uh, Dom's death, you know, look up, you know, the Maria scene, uh, look up uh, just, you know, all the famous scenes, you know, Ty killing himself and, and to see every comment is just like, man, I had to pause the game and go to the bathroom after this and just catch my breath. And to know that, you know, we had that power, that impact on people because, you know, books are amazing, uh, you know, television and film are amazing. But with games, you know, you're there and you're the one controlling these characters and when they live or die based on your decisions. And sometimes we have to take that decision away from you as the creatives and say, no, this character is going to go bye bye and it's going to suck. And hopefully we're going to, you know, squeeze out that the, those feels from you and uh, make you, uh, you know, suffer. <laughs> I, was, I was curious, that, though, that person in the audience, do you have any idea who that was or does he have any idea that he influenced the? I think he was just some, of- some some like random Latino dude out of Brooklyn. You know, and I, I don't know if he, uh, he, he, maybe he tweeted me a while back or something like that, but that's just the thing is, you know, we, when you create a franchise like this, you have a vague idea where things are going to go. You know, like I'm working on that new project with, uh, with a dog that's just a cool, badass dog in, in this kind of domed city. I've tweeted some images of it. And, you know, I know exactly where the first part's going to go, but I don't know where the next part's after that if it does well. I have a vague idea. I think sometimes creatively, it's like you should have a pretty good idea where things could go at a high level. But overall, you don't want to plan things out too much because you have to adjust for, okay, this character played well. This, this game mechanic didn't play that well. Okay. Let's tweak this. Let's adjust this and things like that. It's, it's, and then you add in the fact that there's multiple people often working on a project like that. And it's like a creative Ouija board where you're kind of like, you know, all pushing and pulling for each individual thing. My title was designer on the first three gears, but make no mistake. It was very much a collaborative process. Well, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about some of the writers you brought on. I mean, you just mentioned Karen Travis. I actually know her because I used to write for this ma- uh, magazine called Realms of Fantasy, and she was publishing a lot of stuff in that magazine back in the day. So I kind of kept an eye on her career. Um, but so in the book, you mentioned you had like Karen Travis, Eric Nyland, Susan O'Connor, and Josh Ortega all uh, came on as writers for for Gears of War. Can you talk yeah. about like how, how did you recruit like people with a – background as fiction writers how do you find those people and what makes you want to record well so uh, so yeah eric nyland was working with microsoft he wrote the halo novels right and uh eric uh, you know he's a great cerebral smart writer um and he's the one who suggested you know maybe marcus you know you start the game marcus is in prison and you know you want that character arc you know if you know the the guy who eventually saves the day you know starts you know at his lowest low in prison and you know it's again hero's journey and so then I don't, I honestly remember how we found Susan O'Connor or Rod Ferguson would probably know that, but you know, she was uh, fantastic to work with, you know, you know, making Gears 1 the classic that it is. And the thing is, there's a reason why nearly every Gears game has a new writer because it's writing in itself is hard enough. You know, writing this book was, was really, really rough. You know, it took four years from start to finish, but then to write a video game is a whole other beast. It's like, you know, you could be, okay, we have this character, he's key to the game and he has a flamethrower. And the programmers could come in and like, we got to cut the flamethrower guy because <laughs> the frame rate's not holding up enough. And you're like, that, that basically causes the writer to have to go and unpin every single narrative arc that was interweaven, like interwoven rather. And it's like, if you do a good job as a writer, everything should kind of play into each other, you know, like watching The Haunting of Hill House and how brilliant that is. And like, like imagine just removing, you know, Nell from the script and that it just be like, it just wouldn't work. And so, you know, then, you know, uh, Josh Ortega came on for Gears 2 and, Josh is, uh, he's crazy in the best way. Uh, he's a dear friend and, uh, you know, he, he cranked out gears too. It was great, but then, you know, he had to move on and then, you know, Karen Travis came on and, you know, for those of you who don't know, she's this like super smart, badass British woman. You know, she, she just looks like, like she could just be on this British baking show or be at like Buckingham palace. Like she just carries herself with this air of like classiness. And so the joke was that, you know, she, I had to share an office with her as she was working on the game. And, you know, I'm a gassy guy and I, I felt like I was farting around the queen when she was in the room. But <laughs> it's, uh, it's writing for games is really, really hard. There's a lot of people out there that want to do it. And, you know, there's a story about, you know, the writer for Gears 4 and 5 that, you know, he actually wound up, uh, you know, in the hospital with chest pains from the stress of it. So um, making games is hard, but being the writer who's, uh, you know, uh, you know, at the, the beck and call of the designers and, and the, the the video game team. It's 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 a tough tough gig. 
Yeah. So, so when you say that this book was hard to write and it took you four years, like what were some of the biggest challenges that you had writing it? Well, the first draft was just, you know, me just like verbal diarrhea on the page. You know, and I, I wasn't focused. I was just telling stories about this one time my brother and I, you know, we were kids and we found a house with a hay bale next to it. We lit the hay bale on fire and it almost burned down the house. And luckily hmm. there was a piece of plywood we could toss over it and, and, and smother it and like just crazy shit like that. Right. You know, like, you know, playing, you know, street playing ice hockey uh, on the pond and our, our test to make sure we wouldn't fall through the ice was to find the biggest rock we could and toss it on the ice. And if it didn't crack, we're like, God, ah, fine, let's go skate. <laughs> like, like insane sh- shit like that. I'm like, what the hell were we thinking? But, you know, I, initially it was just like random. Like I, my brain, I tend to, maybe I've, um, I have ADD. I haven't been diagnosed with it, but it's one of those things that I was just like, okay, I just want to put all this in the page, shoot them all, let God sort them out. And then I wound up, uh, my, uh, uh, agent and publisher at Simon and Schuster wound up uh, partnering me with this guy named Todd Gold. Uh, and he did, I did about 80% of the heavy lifting with the book, but he guided me. He was like my, my Yoda. He kind of just pointed me in the right direction and trained me. Okay. Here's how you write a good chapter. Here's how you end a chapter with a cliffhanger. You know, you want people to be turning the page and you want them to keep going and, and reading your book. And then it, it kind of all started to click with me, you know, don't have too many characters, uh, figure out the pacing. And then you realize, you know, like when you make a video game like Gears of War and you have a campaign, you know, you want to have the right pacing. You want to have, you know, a lull at the beginning. Then you want to have some light action, then a lull, then bigger action, then a longer lull, then a huge action, then a really long lull, and then build back up. It's kind of like, you know, the way music builds, you know, to the beat, the chorus and things like that. It's not that dissimilar from, you know, writing a, a novel or even a graphic novel where you want, you know, can't all be action all the time. And, and that's, you know, pacing is universal with so many things, even with, you know, if you go for like a tasting meal with like, a, you know, a, a dinner, a fancy dinner with friends, you know, like that comes out with a moose bouche and you get a light thing and then you get a break. And then and like, it's, it's the same thing with, with relationships and love. Don't just, you know, you know, got climb all over your spouse 24 seven, you know, hold their hand. It's all of this can apply to so much about, about life, love and the pursuit of happiness. And it's all intertwined. And the older I get, the more I, I realize Everything in the world is systems. You know, video games are systems interacting. Uh, you know, books are you know the the interaction between the writer, the editor, the memory of what you had, uh, how how the pacing is there. Uh, you know, food, all of it, Broadway, it, it's all interconnected. And if you can kind of see the Venn diagram overlap of all of that, then you can hopefully master this uh, matrix that we we're all living in. Did you, did you know when you first started the book that it was going to be so personal? I mean, and there's also, I mean, there's so many parts in the book where you say like, this doesn't make me look good or I acted like a jerk or my ego was out of control here. Like, did you know it was going to be that sort of book or did that sort of develop as you worked on it? I mean, uh, there's been, you know, there's a lot of great video games books out th- book, books out there. There's uh, a couple by uh, Jason Schreier, who's a video game journalist. He did um, uh, Blood, Sweat and Pixels, uh, as well as another one that was talking about video game studios shutting down. And they're great books. But the thing is, is they're not as personal, I believe, as they could be because so many video game books are often vetted through the PR and marketing people from the various entities that are involved. So what you get is the official corporate approved statement. And uh, I had alluded to my former employer, Epic, that, uh, you know, uh, hey, maybe I'll give you guys a look at it. And then I decided I took the risk. I was like, you know what, I, if I if I give this to him before it comes out, it's going to get redlined to hell. Yeah. And there's this uh, famous cartoon where this person makes this interesting shaped block, right? And then the the person, the producer, you know, it's, you can't tell it's a producer, but you know, it really is, takes it and says, okay, let's smooth this off here, smooth it off there. And he makes it into a regular block and puts it into the wall and says, so it fits in with all the other ones. And that's the thing is you don't want to lose those those rough edges about everything. And my goal was to make it deeply personal. You know, I talk about when I was 15 and, you know, uh, I lost in the Nintendo World Championships. You know, my father died and then I wound up being molested by a dude I met on the internet at that age, right? Like, my brother claims that's why, you know, I'm eternally 15 years old. It's a massive case of arrested development. I'm like, hey, I just like Star Wars figures, okay? And so it was one of those things, like, I wanted it to be deeply, deeply personal. And I think if you're going to go there and, and put yourself out there, I think you have to. And, and just full on go for it, you know, talking about, you know, the fact that I used to be a serial cheater, you know, I married the first girl that I ever really dated. That didn't work out. I had an affair. Names have been changed to protect the not so innocent. And, uh, you know, but the, at the end of the day, you know, I'm not a big country person, but there's a country song that says, God bless the broken road that led me straight to you. And uh, that's the, you know, took a few, uh, you know, bad pit stops along the way, but ultimately I found true love with my wife, Lauren. Yeah. How have people responded to the book? Like what sort of reactions have you gotten to it? I think, I don't think they're getting what they expected. You know, I think, you know, over the years I've presented this like, you know, confident, sometimes cocky, brash persona. Uh, you know, I was giving people what I thought they wanted and, you know, it wound up being very polarizing. 
uh, you know, like, oh, who's this guy I think he is? You know, with his his his, his surfer hair and his, his necklaces and who's you know, and it's just like I was just a dork trying to masquerade as what I thought a cool person was, right? And so the reaction, you know, has ultimately been one of surprise. You know, I don't think it's going to be a you know a sell a bazillion copies of New York Times bestseller, but I think those people who like video games or are curious about the industry, or you know, the parents who go to you know their local bookshop and they see you know the, the various titles on the front, and they're like, "My kid likes Fortnite. I'm going to give this to my 12 year old." And I'm like, first off, this isn't appropriate for 12 year olds. I'd say maybe 15, oh, 16, <laughs> 15, 16 on up. Um, and so you know, people are just they're generally surprised by it, and uh, they're you know, for me to have that kind of PR persona over the years, and then to be like, look. I, you know, I have a publicist at Simon and Schuster, but the book is what it is. It's written, you know, and it's my journey. And you know, they, they, everybody wanted me to do the audiobook myself, and I couldn't because you know, whenever I re- reread it and I read, you know, the, the highs and the lows of my life, I get really, for lack of a better term, verklempt. I just get, you know, I'm a, I'm an emotional person. You know, I'm the, I'm the crier in the relationship. You know, I'll be watching something and I'll be like, you know, getting misty, and I'll look over at my wife and she's just like, Nah, I'm gonna play Pokemon Go. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we, we found this, I can't remember his name right now, but he's fantastic. He does a great job with the audiobook, And, uh, it's, it's just ultimately been a tremendously rewarding experience. And when the, the, you know, the sample copies showed up at the house and, you know, to go to the local Barnes and Noble and to see it on shelves, uh, you know, before it even came out, you know, I would uh, wistfully walk into the local bookstores and just stare at the autobiography section and just think, you know, one day I'm going to be on there, which is not that different from when I went to the mall back in the day, in the, in the nineties. And, you know, saw, you know, at Electronics Boutique at the time and then GameStop later, you know, see the kiosks for the various games coming out. And I was like, one day Unreal is going to be there. The day that I showed up, you know, at the mall, there was a, you know, a placard for Unreal. And I was like, oh my God, this just got real. It's it's an incredibly gratifying feeling. And, you know, who knows what, what the future is going to hold. Did, did all that stuff you did, you know, acting cool and developing a persona and all that, do you think that that helped your career or would would your career have developed pretty much the same if you hadn't I, I, done all I, that stuff? I think it helped it about 75% and I think it hurt it about 25%. Um, uh, my wife used to work at id Software, you know, creators of Doom and Quake and whatnot. And, um, you know, when she was working there, uh, there was this guy she was working with named Robert, who's a coder. And uh, one time I was in Dallas having brunch with him and Lauren. And uh, he used to kind of be Lauren's mentor at id Software. And then, uh, you know, I remember when ZeniMax bought id, uh, you know, the, some of the id guys who were – because Doom at that point was kind of flailing. Doom clearly found its footing because Doom T- Eternal is one of the best FPSs ever made. But at the time, it was kind of flailing. You know, I would have been happy to consult. And they floated the idea to Vlad, who was uh, running ZeniMax at the time. And Vlad was like, no, he, he was too much of a diva. He'd be, he'd be too hard to work with. And I'm like, uh, how do you know that, dude? You know, like uh, asking everybody at Epic, you know, I'm, 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 you know, when I when I have an idea, I think it's good. I'm like, it's going to be a fucking chainsaw gun. And that's that, that's that. Um, <laughs> there's other times I'm like, OK, you know, you, in Gears 3, you don't think we should Rod and Dave don't think we should start with the Locust. We should start with the Lambent. OK, that makes sense. And then the Locust eventually show up. Uh, you know, you don't. Want, and again, that comes back to pacing. But, you know, for, you know, I've seen the behind the scenes Microsoft polls of like cliffy approval rates. And, you know, most people like, you know, thought I was like, you know, with the persona that I was putting out there, oh, he seems like an okay dude. But there's a certain section of the internet. It's just like, I hate that guy. And it goes back to, and I, I used to think like, wait, where's that coming from? And then I think back to when I was the pimply faced teenager myself and I didn't have anything and I was just noodling, trying to make my own games. And I saw Wired Magazine and I saw John Romero and John Carmack showing off their mansions and their Ferraris. And I was just like, I hate those guys, you know, <laughs> and it was also, you know, it's the whole joke. The hate is because they ain't us, you know, and it was it, like Ice-T says, you know, you're not doing it right if you don't have any haters. And it's like in my Twitter feed's been apart, apart from all the Elon Musk shit that's going on has been remarkably nice and chill. And I'm like, man, I don't have any haters. I need to do something to to, to stir the bee's nest. And, uh, you know, it's it's just, you know, I think. A lot of the fans out there who play video games, you know, they, they're not necessarily – a lot of them aren't necessarily the ones like me that weren't going to prom. You know, they live on the internet. You know, they live on, on 4chan and, and, and sites like that. And, uh, you know, they see somebody like me coming along like, hey, how's it going, guys? And they just want to punch me. And understandably, back in the day, I was slightly punchable. Well, I mean, one of the most interesting parts of the book to me was was you talking about your feelings about John Romero and how you grew up idolizing him. And then when he stumbled with Daikatana, that you sort of took some glee in that. And then later on, when your company failed, then you sort of saw that from the other side. And that whole, I don't know, just that whole journey uh, was, was interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it was a case, you know, so first off, you know, going back to being the pimply face kid, you know, playing Doom and like, you know, seeing, you know, Romero and Carmack with their cars and all that stuff. 
it's like it was it was straight up envy you know and i was you know listening to ice t on loop at the time and he has this line i think it's from new jack city where it's like you know i had nothing and i had wanted it you had everything and you flaunted it and uh i was like i wanted i wanted that so bad and as a result hatred came out of it and then you know romero you know started ion storm it's going to be a big thing and we we're all looking at it like, you know, it's going to fail. It's going to fail. There's no way, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, ultimately it started crumbling. And we we're like, yeah, you know, and, you know, thankfully, you know, I wound up getting a lot of talent out of Ion Storm after it crumbled. And then, you know, years later, you know, I became friends with John and, uh, and you know, Brenda Romero. She's absolutely brilliant and wonderful too. And then, you know, realizing like what a dick I was being. And then, you know, whoever runs this matrix that we're in was like, you know what, I'm going to show you. You're going to make your own studio and you're going to hire incredibly talented people. You're going to try to make the best games you can. And no matter what you do, it's going to fail. You're going to see how Romero felt during that. But also the thing about Romero is Romero, you know, managed to bounce back. You know, he's had multiple studios. He's had multiple successes since then. You know, he's known, you know, not for the failure of Ion Storm. He's known for, you know, his his history of, of Doom and Quake and the other games that he's made since then. And that's the one thing is, you know, you gotta, you know, it's the old uh, Chumba Woman song, even though it's about alcoholism. I get knocked down, but I get up again. And that's the thing is, you know, everybody lo- loves to build you up. They love to tear you down, but then they love a comeback. So, you know, hopefully this book, you know, as it is the end of chapter one of my life and uh, with some of the stuff I'm working on, hopefully, uh, you know, we'll have a bright chapter two. Mm-hmm. You also talk in the book about how when you were running um, Boss Key Studios that you you were commenting on politics and stuff on Twitter and you feel like there was a certain segment of the audience that reacted negatively to that. And I was just curious how oh, you absolutely. feel about that now. No, absolutely. You know, I'm a Democrat. I lean left. Um, and, you know, when I started the studio, Gamergate was in full swing. I'm sitting here going like, what the fuck is going on right now? And, you know, there's the mask of it's about ethics and games journalism. I'm like, no, you guys are just mad that Zoe Quinn didn't fuck you and that she fucked somebody else because Zoe Quinn is the manic pixie dream girl so many of these kids wish that they had. And so ultimately, though, that wound up being kind of the the blueprint for 45 getting elected with kind of troll culture and, and doxing and all that stuff that was out there. At the end of the day, though, you know, you can believe what you ever want politically, you know, as long as you're not a fucking Nazi. But the thing is, is... You know, when the news story about your upcoming video game becomes the fact that the game has gender neutral bathrooms in it, you fucked up, right? Like, you know, and that's the thing is, you know, me being forthright with my political beliefs on social media and then that becoming news stories as opposed to the here's the new gun that's in the game. That's not that's not good form. If you're like, you know, like an Apple or, you know, uh, you know, whatever, like if you're a huge company that's worth bazillions of dollars you can afford to take a stance when you're a fledgling company with 80 people and you're the ceos you know talking shit about a certain political belief on social media that's not a good look and so in hindsight if i could go back in time i would have you know bit my tongue and you know save my political beliefs for you know my friends and family and uh, you know because i believe that really ultimately hurt things at the end of the day yeah i mean that's i, I sort of I can see how that's that's the pragmatic attitude. I mean, I feel sort of bad in a democratic society. I feel like people should be able to express their opinions and not be punished for it. Yeah, but I mean, economically, we're in a, we're in a world of where social media causes you know so much random outrage. It's like you know, I I, I can't remember the the quote that uh you know I think Alana Pierce was talking about the worst take she had on like social media. She said something about being cold in some places, and somebody replied like, "Yeah, what about the people who die of heat stroke every year?" You know, and that's like, you know, I, I read uh, Eliza Schlesinger's recent book and she has a whole, you know, the, the amazing comedian and she has this whole book where she talks about, she goes through like the list of like, you know, you could say one thing like, man, I like bananas and people are like, yeah, what about oranges? Right. And like, and that's the, and the immediately that knee jerk reaction can come out of anything. And then what happens is that, you know, that vibration could hit so hard that ultimately winds up to, you know, becoming a viral thing. And that's where, you know, I think there are instances where a quote cancel culture is not necessarily a bad thing. And there's other instances where you're like, uh, okay, like James Gunn posted some off-color jokes 10 years ago on Twitter, and the guy was directing trauma films at the time. You know, like, uh, you got to let that one slide. But what happens is, you know, the, the one side finds the old tweets that are off-color, and they leverage it against the, the other side. And then, you know, people, you know, get outraged, the corporations get nervous, and then things get pulled, plug, th- you know, sponsorships get pulled and everything like that. And thankfully, in the case of James Gunn, you know, sanity prevailed, right? Yeah, I, I just feel like I would hope that we could have some sort of cultural ethos that people just play the games that they think are good. And if the designer says something on Twitter you disagree with, you just kind of disregard that. Yeah, have, have you been in the perspective? Have you been on the internet? <laughs> I mean, just, this is, is aspir- aspirational. 
Well, human human beings are, are tribal, right? And it, it goes down to what game are you playing? Like, you know, what, who are you playing online with? What console are you playing? What platform are you playing that on? You know, you're either with us or against us. And so, you know, that, that it's a, a microcosm of politics, of gender identity, of, of of race issues, of religious issues. You know, that's just humanity in general. And I don't see that getting fixed anytime soon. And the internet, I think, has exasperated a lot of those issues, you know, especially when it comes to politics, you know, and, and, and there's so many politicians that... I, I should not know about certain politicians whose name shall not be named, but they're just willing to say the most outrageous bullshit. And then what happens is, you know, the, 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 the accounts that completely don't agree with what they're saying are signal boosting it to try and like make fun of them. And I'm like, no, all you're doing is giving them eyeballs. Eyeballs equals money in this world. Uh, have we forgotten that? Like, that's why esports are huge now these days. Cause you know, people are like, oh, esports never be big. It's like, dude, people watch people play poker on TV. Like that's not exactly exciting, but for some people it is. And once you get the eyeballs, then you get the sponsors, then you get the money, and then you can fund the tournaments, and then the people make money, and then it just compounds itself. That's how the world works. What, what do you make of this phenomenon of game players and YouTubers and streamers and things being more popular a lot of the times than creators and developers? Because I think I, I, I think it's uh, twofold. I think first for, first and foremost, uh, a lot of the developers don't want to be front facing. Right. They don't want to be, you know, put themselves out there like on camera and things like that because game development's exhausting. And, you know, we're not always at our most bright eyed, bushy tailed, you know, working long hours and things like that. And, uh, you know, we're in a world where, you know, MT, you know, back growing up for me in the 80s, MTV was where it was at. Right. And then MTV kept pivoting with trying Teen Mom and all that stuff. Who knows whether they're doing, <laughs> they're doing well these days, you know, Jersey Shore and all that. But, you know, you look at, you know, YouTubers and Twitch streamers and TikTokers, you know. Those are the new, you know, celebrities these days. And the other part that that came from was the fact that, you know, your average uh, developer slash publisher doesn't want there to be visible developers because a, vis- a visible developer, you know, gets a fan base and then they ultimately can leverage that fan base and the fact that people know who they are for uh, more money and a better contract. And so what they want is, you know, you'll see so many games now where you'll get an update and instead of being signed by the lead designer or the main creative, it'll be from the team. Right. And then the, 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 the powers that be like that, because the team, they could just interchange anybody, for lack of a better term, a cog, you know, and replace that cog in the machining and the, the machine will keep running. You know, if there's like the, the, the one person spearheading and they move on, then conf- the public confidence in the game, you know, goes downhill and things like that. But there's certain aspects to this, the culture that I get, like, you know, I look at TikTok and the algorithms and everything like that. I'm like, man, I can get, I can get videos of huskies howling all day long. This is great. But then also, you know, you hear these stories about like, you know, you know, this YouTube, YouTube star and things like that. And I'm like, on one hand, I'm like, okay, I get that. I respect it. You know, we've democratized, you know, creativity, you know, Instagram models, there's models that have become huge that otherwise wouldn't have become big. And by the way, let's face it, Instagram is for butts. Um, so <laughs> on one hand, it's good. On the other hand, like, you know, as me getting older, I'm like, you know, I wish more people would just know who the damn developers are. And, you know, I refuse to, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do some stuff on TikTok. I had a really good following on Vine back in the day, but I just refuse to be like, be part of the, Hey, what's up guys? Like, and subscribe crowd. It's just like, the thumbnails alone on YouTube fucking kill me. They're so utterly punchable. Like the, the kids just mop it up with a biscuit. And, you know, the parents have, you know, an eight-year-old, they give them a, you know, a tablet. And then there you go, Joey, you know, go watch your videos. And uh, we'll be over here watching, you know, the haunting of Hill House, you know. So it's a, that's, that's the new world, new world order in which we live. You know, you ask, I've seen many studies that say if you ask your average kid what they want to be when they grow up now and it's influencer. Yeah, well, because you say in the book, you say Twitch, the live streaming interactive gaming platform that had sucked everything to do with gaming into its force field like a black hole. So it makes it sound like you're not that fond of Twitch or like, how do you feel about it? I I respect it. And, you know, Twitch creates a sense of community and, you know, the people that don't get it, they're like, well, you you could play the the game, but you're just going to watch other people play the game. It's like, no, you're there on any given Sunday watching your football team. When's the last time you were in the fucking backyard throwing a pigskin around there, buddy? Right. And so it's created that sense of community. And th- the biggest thing is loneliness is an industry these days. You know, people want to feel the connection with, you know, the cool dude who's charismatic, like, you know, Markiplier. They want to, you know, have, you know, Pokemon notice them, right? All these, you know, personalities. And, you know, they're making money hand over fist. You know, it's a free market, more power to them. But at the end of the day, if you're, if you're a game and you're not on the front page of Twitch, you're dead in the water. And there's so many just, you know, you have to make a game for watchability. My wife's playing that game where it's about the lambs that are creating a cult. And they're doing some brilliant Twitch integration into that where like, you know, the people watching your stream can can join the game as an NPC and join the cult. And, 
and then they see their name in the game and things like that. Like I wanted that stuff in Lawbreakers years ago, and it seems like so many games are only finally getting around to that type of Twitch integration where not only can you watch the person, you know, interact with them, you know, use little points to make them, you know, jump up and eat a Pringle or something like that. And, uh, but then also, you know, get further, further integration. You know, what if you had an FPS where, you know, two players are going against each other and players can, you know, spend you know, viewpoints in order to, you know, do uh, ammo and loot drops to, you know, uh, the players that they favor, much like the Hunger Games is like, I don't know if anybody's doing that right now. It feels like the, you know, that lamb game has only scratched the surface. So my brain is still always in that space, you know, in regards to what could be done with video games, what could be a great experience. But, you know, I don't know if anytime soon I would be ready to dive back in with both feet because, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I got pretty burnt with boss key. So I'm enjoying just kind of noodling on new stuff in my spare time. Well, speaking of first person shooters, so like, you know, back in the day, I was really, really into Doom and Doom 2. And that's just all my friends and I did all day was play Doom 2 Deathmatch. And I felt like this is something I kind of rant about every once in a while. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. But the original rules when they first launched Doom Deathmatch was you could pick up each weapon once and then you had a limited supply of ammo and you could pick up each health pack once and then it was gone for the rest of the match. Mm -hmm. And so there was sort of this balance where the longer you stayed alive, the harder and harder it got for you because you couldn't get back your health and you couldn't get back your ammo. And eventually you were just down to the chainsaw and your opponent was going to get you no matter how bad they were. Yeah. And it made it fun for everybody. And then they changed the rules so that the health and ammo all respond. And then, like, none of my friends who were not that good at the game wanted to play anymore because they were just getting their ass kicked and they could never get a win ever. And I just feel like more games should be structured the way it was uh, originally where uh, the more you win, the harder and harder it gets to keep winning. I mean, that's, 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 that's a brilliant auto-balancing mechanic, right? And so – you know, it's not a one to one, but you go back to the. We had this programmer named Matt Olfke, right, on the uh, Unreal uh, Unreal Tournament games, right? And he was a character. I'll leave it at that. Um, always wore a dragon shirt and sweatpants, and I was like, I like dragons, <laughs> dude, but come on, switch it up a little bit. And um, he, um, you know, we had the weapon in Unreal Tournament called the Redeemer, where you could pilot it, and then you know, it, it created this ridiculous explosion, or you could just straight up fire it. And Matt was so good at the game that you know nobody could ever kill him. And every time I got the Redeemer, I'd seek him out and I'd blow him up and he gets so pissed. And I'm like, dude, this weapon exists as a great equalizer, a, perf- a perfect game. The perfect player should not be able to win 100% of the time. That's not interesting. You know, I've become a fan of, you know, American football the last 10 or so years and, you know, watching my Saints, who are pretty terrible this year, like, you know, or any football game that I'll put on, you know, during the winter to help me get through the, the long dark of it being dark at 5 p.m. It's like, you know, like no one likes a blowout. You know, you want a good back and forth. You know, you want Rocky where, you know, who, you don't know who's, well, you know, usually know who's going to win, but you want that, that trade off. You know, you don't want somebody just getting their ass kicked immediately. You know, the player who wins might believe like, yeah, I'm, a, I'm the best. But, you know, now what, what's happened is, you know, when you have these, you know, hopefully large player pools, as it comes down to, you know, figuring out how to sort the players with matchmaking so that, you know, you, the, the really, really amazingly good people aren't paired with the people who are new to the game. And that goes back to Lawbreakers and, and one of our mistakes was, you know, the game came up for air like three or four times at least with alphas and betas. And so players who were in those were gods. And then once the game actually came out, the players that were new were just decimated by them because we didn't have a big enough player base to properly match make with the players. And so that was an, yet another factor because it was a very high skill caps uh, kind of game. And so if you're good at it, you could be a god. And if you, if you, were, if you were new, you just get decimated. Uh, and that's something you have to keep in mind. And, you know, the, the original design of Doom Deathmatch was was really airtight. And, uh, you know, I'm a fan of that. And I mean, it goes kind of back to Mario Kart, you know, like, you know, the, the controversy of the blue shell, right? And, you know, you get somebody who gets the lead Mario Kart, you know, you don't want it once they get away, you don't want them to be away forever. Uh, so you want to have that one shot, you know, the random that, you know, maybe still that blue blue shell could creep up on them and kind of equalize the game because you want a nail biter. Again, no one likes a blowout. Yeah. Yeah. So if there's any games that replicate that Doom 2 original deathmatch experience, I would definitely be interested in, in playing. I would say, I would say, you know, I don't really know what's going on behind the scenes, but I think Counter-Strike really is one of those games, you know, like there's people who've been playing Counter-Strike since like 1.6 that like, including my wife, that are insanely good at it, you know, like got to get the Deagle or the Op, right? And, uh, you know, I still to this day, I've said this in many interviews, I think Counter-Strike is the most airtight multiplayer first person shooter ever created. I, I think it has yet to be defeated. Yeah, yeah, no, I love Counter-Strike for sure. Um I was just so there was a thing I saw on Twitter recently that I've been thinking about a lot where this person said basically um I decided to stop playing video games so much recently after looking back at my life and realizing that very few of my happiest memories involved video games. 
And that just kind of blew my mind because when I look back at my life, like half my happiest memories involve video games. So I was just curious what you think about that and that's a really, what, that's what a really, separates. That's a really bizarre sentiment um, because, you know, like my memories, you know, like I mentioned in the book, um, you know, my, my parents give me five bucks and I go to qu- get a quarter pound of French burnt peanuts and I go to Aladdin's castle, you know, and I, I put the money in the machine. I felt like I'd won you know, the slots in Vegas and I go play, you know, Rolling Thunder and, and, and Crystal Castles and, and all of these amazing games. And it was this magical time period. And, you know, the first time, um, you know, playing the Ultima games, you know, the music and playing Wing Commander and, and so many of these games, I have so many amazing memories of it. And I think, I don't know, maybe, you know, there's something going on with that person. Whereas, you know, <laughs> like, I, it sounds bad, but it sounds like that, you know, this is going to sound really misogynistic but it sounds like he got married and then like you know had a kid and then you know he's finding like he's loving his family he's loving his kid and somehow he's been gaslit into believing his time playing video games was a waste which you know i'm, I'm reading into this way too much but you know I, <laughs> I think i think you'll find far more people have far more fond memories of video games than those that regret it which is again that's a really depressing post well, but like I, I had this experience when I was a kid where my best friend sort of ditched me because he wanted to get in with the cool people. And uh, the the sort of line that sticks out in my mind is he said, uh, there's more to life than Curse of the Azure Bonds, which is <laughs> this D&D game we were playing, computer game. And um, flash forward to decades later and, and, you know, see Stranger Things being the phenomenon, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, I've had a pretty interesting life. I think, I mean, I interview famous people. I've been all over the world and published fiction and stuff. And uh, I don't know that there really is more to life. Than Chris. I mean, there, I think there, back there's, and- there's more to life than, than what, you, what you could do. Like, you know, just when you're young, go get fucked up at the bar with people or, you know, get drunk, go drunk driving or then, you know, marry somebody in your 20s and fart out a kid way too soon and be miserable in the suburbs as you're struggling to pay your bills. Like, really? Like, it's not to knock family people, you know, my, my brother-in-law has got three wonderful kids. We're about to go to Disney world with, uh, in a couple of days and I, I absolutely adore them. But you know, it's, it's, there's a saying that I use with, with people in life and I've mentioned it before. It's like, you know, there's a scene in star Wars, if you recall, obviously, uh, where Luke's at the moisture farm and, you know, he comes out and the sun, the, the binary sunset is setting, you know, the John Williams music, music kicks in and Luke looks down and then he looks up and he realizes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm destined for more than this. And it's one of those things that I, you know, any people that I know that are friends that are younger, you know, like Lauren has this uh, dear friend, Bree, who does, now she does QA full-time and Epic moved out of Minnesota for it. And, uh, you know, she, I saw her one time, she painted a photo of the binary sunset and she said, just inspired by, uh, you know, a quote from a friend of mine and, you know, don't, don't die five miles from where you were born. And, you know, the fact is, you know, uh, you know, one of the phrases I also like is find an emerging market and ride it up and surprise the nerd stuff won, you know, what's biggest at the box office, you know, like. You know, kids back in the day reading Captain America were like, you know, the boys would be like, oh, you're reading your nerdy shit. Blah, 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 blah. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, you now you're a janitor at a high school. So fuck you. Well, w- yeah, one of the, the moments in the book that um, sticks out most for me is you're in your, you know, new Tudor mansion with your pool in the backyard. And you think to yourself, fuck you, kids on the bus in middle school. Nintendo Boy won. They used to make fun of you by calling you Nintendo Boy. Yeah. And I mean, you say earlier in the book, I was, uh, this is earlier in your life, you say I was trying to buy happiness, which is impossible. But it seems like buying a Tudor mansion with a pool in the backyard with your video game money did kind of make you happy. Yeah, well, uh, you know, Biggie was right, though, more money, more problems. You know, it's just like, you know, you buy a house and, you know, shit breaks all the time. Um, <laughs> but the, the thing is, is, you know, like, at the end of the day, I, I get to have a sleepover with my best friend in a very cozy spot. It's big, but cozy, right? And the thing is, is, you know, you know, the whole fuck you Nintendo boy one, like, you know, there was definitely a phase where I was like that, but there's a point where like, you know, it's like, dude, really? Like, come on. It's like, there's a quick anecdote that I want to tell. I went back to uh, Boston for my 20 year high school reunion. And, uh, you know, I brought Lauren with me and, you know, cause I was, you know, the, the pimply dork in high school into video games. And, um, you know, she's, jo- she was joking. It was joking, but she's like, I'm going to wear the tightest, sexiest. I'm like, no, you're not You're gonna <laughs> dress, you're going to dress nice, but you're not going to, you know, go full on. And are you going to be sweet to everybody just because you are absolutely sweet to everybody and you're kind and, and giving and loving. It just so happens you're beautiful. Um, and so that was that moment where I was like walking in like, yeah. And then I was like, dude, whatever. Like these are all, these are people you came up with, you know, and they're, most of them were really nice to you. And, uh, you know, if you, if you become bitter, it's the whole saying, if you, you know, live long enough to become the hero and you eventually become the villain, AKA Elon Musk. <laughs> I also, I mean, this just blew my mind reading the book is you just mentioned in passing Nintendo games that you beat and on that list is Ghosts and Goblins. 
And I would have said that that was impossible. I mean, I had that game and it's, it's I would have said it was literally an impossible game to beat. I've even seen on YouTube that you get to the end and then it turns out like the whole game was just a dream and you have to go back to level four or something and do it all again. I mean, did you actually beat Ghosts and Goblins? Yeah, man, I was I was hardcore. You know, <laughs> I was I would just again like that would that was all I would do. You know, well, it wasn't fully all I would do. You know, we'd still have the Saturdays of going out, and, you know, finding porn in the woods and lighting fires and things like that. Um, but you know, if I had spare time, I would be playing my Nintendo, and I just I worshipped Nintendo. My entire walls were covered in all things Nintendo. I ate the fucking cereal even, and uh, I just I, I just loved it. And so I was I was my reaction time was on point. You know, I was like Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire catching the, uh, you know, the, the, the food in the, in the cafeteria. And uh, I was, I was, uh, you know, Deadly Towers was also another really tough one. You know, Mighty Bomb Jack, all of them. And I just, I saw them as conquests. And so I wanted to see how many I could beat. I had a giant poster board on the back of my uh, bedroom door and I wrote down the names of all of them. I wish I still had it. But, I, you know, I literally have that old Nintendo upstairs right now. And I literally have hash marks on it, you know, kind of like a MIG, you know, fighter pilot shooting down MIGs of games I beat. And I, I took a, an old broken cartridge and I spray painted and I wrote a hundred games beat, made, my, made myself a little trophy. And uh, <laughs> I was just, I just loved it. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things I was on the outside looking in and I, I wanted to be in the business. And the first time I got to go to CES, which is, you know, the electronic show before it became fully E3 and all that, the, all the trade shows, I felt like I was just like, this is my place. These are my people. And, uh, and then I just, I loved being in the industry. I loved the friends that I made. I loved the, the contacts and the adventures that I had, you know, made decent money. And uh, now I'm at the point where I'm just, I want to see where this, this goes. I feel like I've been playing an RPG my entire life. And now, you know, that point in the RPG where the world fully opens up and you can go anywhere and do anything. That's kind of what my life feels like at this point. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I want to ask you about your, before we run out of time, I want to ask you about what, what projects you're working on now. But I also wanted to ask you about books because you mentioned that you, you know, that you were into Stephen King and Piers Anthony and stuff. I'll just, I just made a little list of the books that you mentioned in, in your book, read the fantasy and science fiction is like Solaris, 1984, Man in the High Castle, Handmaid's Tale, Hitchhiker's Guide, Fifth Wave, Ender's Game, Leviathan Wakes, and Ready Player One. Is that a pretty good sample of you know some of your favorite books or are there it is other a pretty good sample. Well, the thing is, it's a pretty good sample. But the last few years, to be honest, like I've actually um, I'm more into nonfiction, uh, and I think it's because you know getting my head in the memoir space, right? And and reading, you know, like you know Tina Fey's book, Amy Poehler, uh, Lindy West's Shrill. Um, I also, and this isn't virtue signaling, as the assholes say, but I have a habit of reading books by demographics that aren't necessarily me. You know, I read Dry by Augustine Burroughs. Um, you know, he's a gay alcoholic that had to come to terms with being gay and, um, you know, his drinking, you know, uh, reading again, Lindy West Shrill and all the shit that she dealt with being a, a slightly uh, full figured feminist, um, reading um, um, Contested Waters, um, talking about, you know, why, why a lot of African Americans don't like swimming in pools. Well, spoiler, you see the photo of that white dude at that, that public pool pouring uh, hydrochloric acid in the, the pool with the little black children are swimming. Funny how that works. And then reading the new Jim Crow and realizing that slavery didn't, never went away. It just evolved into the institutionalized prison system, uh, things like that, and just kind of understanding somebody else's perspective. And I'm cursed with that thing they called empathy, I guess, where, you know, understanding where somebody else is coming from, as opposed to immediately, you know, backing off to us versus them. So, like, my bookshelf downstairs is full, and, like, I'm looking at it right now, and I got, like, Got like Somerset Mangrum to get to. I got um, Terrence McNally, uh, you know, uh, just, you know, being a huge theater nerd and all that, you know, I want to get into reading more, you know, uh, plays, you know, and learning how to, you know, learning final draft and learning how to write screenplays as well as just actual plays um, and just learning, learning, learning. That's the key, you know, especially as you get older, you know, the older you get, the more that you need to keep learning, the more you need to keep exercising, the more you need to go to your goddamn doctor. <laughs> yeah, I enjoy Dry by Augustine Burroughs, but I, Running with Scissors, that book is nuts. If you haven't read that, you have w to read that. Was one. that his or was that um, uh, Sedaris? No, I'm almost certain Running with Scissors was uh, Augustine Burroughs. Okay, I'll have, to, I'll have to add that to the backlog. <laughs> and it's uh, one of those things like, you know, my wife and I, like, you know, we'll go to like a bar, right? And she'll sit there she, with her Switch and she has two phones with Pokemon Go and she'll be playing her devices. And there, there's this local pub, right? It's called Heroes. And um, it's a little divey, but. You know, we'll go out there like we'd go go for a drink and then go to like a restaurant nearby and have dinner and, you know, have a nightcap and go home. But like we're sitting there, it was like it turns out it was like the, the 10 year anniversary of this place. And like people are boiling over onto the bar, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, her and I are at the at the at the bar. I have I have a book and my headphones on and Lauren has her like her devices and her headphones on. And like there's like some girl taps me on the shoulder. She's like, how can you do this? I'm like, 
you just zone out, you know, it's called, you know, having millions of miles at American Airlines alone, you know, you learn how to tune out <laughs> and just, you know, dive into a, a virtual world, albeit a book or a Netflix series or a video game, right? Yeah. I'll also mention in the book you mentioned, uh, speaking of nonfiction, you mentioned The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell and Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell was, uh, you know, nonfiction books you enjoyed. Yeah. I mean, that's quite the thing about Hero with a Thousand Faces is, you know, the, the overall arc of the hero's journey and, you know, how that I was applying that to my my overall life. And there's so many different interesting books about things like that. The, the irony is, you know, I was on a press tour for Gears 2 and I was just, you know, I, you know, I love to drink and, you know, I'm on the wagon for a while right now, doctor's orders, but there's so many stories where you'll be at a bar and you'll meet somebody interesting. This guy was there for fashion week in Milan. He starts to, we start talking about narrative and the games I'm working on. I didn't realize the influence that Hero of the Thousand Faces had on George Lucas for Star Wars and things like that. And uh, there's a book I read recently called Hitmakers. Uh, it was recommended by a friend of mine named Brian Burke. He was a uh, JJ Abrams go-to producer for Alias all the way through to Star Wars and Star Trek and whatnot. And uh, basically the long story short is it says, um, make something that feels familiar yet new. You know, the Mandalorian is essentially a Western. You know, it's based on an old Western where a guy's guiding this young child to a certain destination, you know, and so, but this is, this is sci-fi, right? You know, you look at Firefly, you know, in spite of the fact that it wasn't a commercial success, it was a space Western, you know, take something that's, you know, that, that's, that feels familiar yet twisted, you know, gears, you know, felt sci-fi, but it also kind of felt like, you know, the, a little bit of Band of Brothers in there. You know, you, if you go too, too weird, then you wind up, you know, being too esoteric and it, it's hard to, to find a mainstream audience that way. Yeah. So what are you working on now? You have like a graphic novel and like what other stuff are you doing? Yeah. I mean, I've kind of skirted around a little bit, you know, it's, I don't want to go into too much detail, but it's a graphic novel about a dog superhero. Um, you know, I see, uh, you know, I'm, I'm good friends with Jim Lee. Um, you know, I sent him uh, the first issue and, uh, he said he thought it was really cool. Um, from DC. And, you know, the thing is I don't want to do uh, DC's league of super pets. The question that I ask everybody is what happens when the kids who like Paw Patrol turn 10, 11, 12, 13, right? Is there, is there going to be something there for them? You know, and I want to make something very much PG 13 and that's all I could say at this time, but, um, also working on, a. My wife and I actually started working on this uh, short story that kind of could fit in right with uh, Amazing Stories or Creepshow, uh, those anthology series back in the day. She's working on her own comic book, which is about gargoyles, but in a modern technology world. Um, I'm also working on um, something dragon related. I'll leave it at that um, and other stuff. And so as well as doing karaoke every Monday at the Raleigh Beer Garden. And <laughs> I just I feel like, you know. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a bunch of tattoos now and they're not insanely detailed. They just are there as reminders. You know, on my right arm, it says it's chaos be kind, which is uh, the quote from Patton Oswalt's uh, comedy special Annihilation talking about his wife passing and his wife's advice to him was, you know, the world is chaos. Just be kind. And I look at my arm, whatever I want. I'm thinking about being a dick and I'm like, nope, be kind. And the other one is on my left arm. It's uh, from Harold, the purple crayon, the, the children's book that I loved growing up. And Harold has this purple crayon and he can draw and create anything he wants to when it comes to life. And I'm a lefty and, you know, Harold, you know, it's written in, in cursive. It says create with an exclamation mark with an arrow pointing to my left arm. And just reminds me, you know, I've, I've had a time period where like, you know, if I, if I don't have a project or multiple projects that I'm working on, you know, I, idle hands at the devil's play thing. You know, I need something to get me out of bed in order to see the latest concept art or the latest script from something and then approach different people to see if they want to publish it, you know, get the deals going and just have multiple irons in the fire. And, you know, I'm back creating and where, where it goes, you know, who the heck knows. Yeah, and that's cool if you're working on a short story. The short stories are kind of my main area of interest, so I'll definitely uh, oh, yeah. keep an eye out for that. Yeah, I mean, like Matheson stuff, like, oh my God, like all of his stuff completely holds up. Yeah, yeah, I just interviewed Chris Matheson. Uh, he, he wrote a book about his relationship with his dad, Richard Matheson. Oh, um, is, so. his, is his son an author as well? Yeah, yeah, he actually wrote Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Shut up. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's so many of those connections right there, like, you know, talking, working with, uh, you know, talking to Dunk, Duncan Jones, and then he's David Bowie's son, and <laughs> the, the, you know, the the guy who's in a bunch of the Mike Flanagan shows was actually Elliot and E.T. back in the day. It's just like, what the hell? <laughs> it's just, it's, it's such a small world because, you know, uh, you know, Justin Roiland and I would throw this San Diego Comic-Con yacht party, and we get all sorts of interesting people from, you know, cosplayers to pro gamers to celebrities and, and even some porn stars. And uh, one of the guys, Raul, um, who's great on the internet, he's so savage. Um, he's been in a bunch of the Flanagan stuff, but he was the sheriff in Midnight Mass. And who, we he and I were DM. He's like, yeah, actually, actually came to your party at one point. We met. I'm like, oh god damn it, I need to, <laughs> I need to watch my drinking at those parties because it's way too exciting. So, <laughs> uh, all right, cool. So we're all out of time. So do you have any other final thoughts or? Uh- yeah. Any, any projects or anything? Um, you know, I hope people check out the book, you know, and, and approach it with, uh, you know, an open mind, regardless of what you think about me. If you love me or you hate me, <laughs> or if you, uh, you know, if you like my work, uh, it's a really deep, 
thoughtful, personal insiders look into my life as well as the industry as it grows up and I grew up. And um, I'm not dead yet. You know, uh, keep your eyes peeled on my Twitter. Uh, I have multiple irons in the fire, and there are also some more Broadway musicals that I'll be producing coming up. So stay tuned. Yeah. All right. Awesome. All right. So we've been speaking with Cliff Blazinski about his new book, Control Freak. So Cliff, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Cliff Blazinski for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.